Hey, what's up, humans? Really excited to bring you the first of a four-part series of interviews today with Dr. Pierre-Marie Robitaille. Pierre's scientific journey has been pretty unique in that his illustrious biomedical imaging career, which included the development of the world's first eight-Tesla MRI machine, has taken a sharp turn away from biology altogether. He realized that his insights into radio imaging of the human body implied some extraordinary and potentially disruptive revelations about the very nature of that glowing orb in the sky, the sun. Our journey with Pierre-Marie begins today with his early career efforts in radio imaging and ends several episodes from now with this tantalizing possibility that modern astrophysics, and consequently today's overarching cosmological paradigm, has been derailed by some fundamental misapprehensions about the way that thermal radiation is produced. Pierre believes his insights could rewrite much of what humans believe about their host star. And of course, if you're intrigued, be sure to follow up on the many papers and videos that he's made freely available across the interwebs. Also, if you like what we do here at Demystifying Science, please consider checking us out on Patreon at DemystifySci, where you can become a patron for as little as 3 bucks a month, unlocking access to all sorts of conversations and content. And if you have the means, your support could really make the difference for this show, so we can keep this experience ad-free and grow the network to bring better and better conversations. Now, without further ado, we present the father of UHF MRI, Dr. Pierre-Marie Robitaille. MRI is such a powerful method. I got into it because you could see biochemistry inside the living cell. For me, there was never a boundary. You know, it's okay, biochemistry, zoology, and organic chemistry. I ended up training people in physics. It, it's all related. Both MRI and radio astronomy, they, they look at weak signals, and you see it in the person of Ed Purcell. He had unified NMR and radio astronomy. You know, he did both. So he wins the Nobel Prize for NMR, but a year before that, he discovers the 21-centimeter line in the galaxy. So nobody can dispute that an NMR person can understand radio astronomy. We hear you are something of an expert in analyzing the radio spectra from human beings. And you developed the world's first ultra-high field MRI. And yeah, we would love right. to hear your story about how you got into all of this. Yes. All right. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a privilege to do it. I was very fortunate to be able to do that as a scientist. So ultra-high field MRI is functionally different from everything that came before it or it's an improvement no it, it's really an extension of it so what what happened was that we had mri and then there was a real question as to whether or not you could go to higher magnetic field strengths so clinically uh back in the mid 90s a clinical scanner for humans might have been operating at one and a half tesla typically there were one and a half tesla scanners so uh, one Tesla is 10,000 Gauss, and the Earth's magnetic field is about uh, half a Gauss at sea level. So a one and a half Tesla is uh, about 15,000 Gauss. Uh, and so what... the, the push to ultra-high field was really uh, a push from beyond four Tesla, which was very high field. The four Tesla would have been 40,000 Gauss, all the way up to 80,000 Gauss. That was uh, the the eight Tesla and what made it ultra high field is actually because of the frequency we're using. So 
the ultra high frequency spectrum starts uh, above 300 megahertz. So we're in the ultra high uh, frequency range. And so that's why we I called it ultra high field MRI. And so let's take a moment to orient our listeners who might not know much about MRI beyond the fact that it allows you to look into the human body. Right. What's actually happening? Uh, well, MRI uh, theory is a little bit complicated, but we have what we're looking at in human imaging uh, is typically the water line. So you have, as you know, the body is mostly made up of water and uh, three quarters water or so. And, and water is 110 molar in protons. So in a water molecule, there are two protons. And uh, so water is 55 molar. So you, you're about uh, 110 molar protons. So when, when we collect an MR image, we actually are looking usually at the, at the water line. Now, in, And when you, you say line, you, you're talking about the radio emissions, right? Uh, well, we excite the water line and then we, we listen to it again. Mm. We excite the spins and then we listen to the spins as they relax. Mm. So people call it a radio technique. Now, because we're in, we're in that frequency range of the radio band, for instance, if you look at carbon at, uh, at, uh, at 9.4 Tesla, in, in a 9.4 Tesla magnet, if you look at carbon, it would be at 100 megahertz. So that's 100 on your FM dial, right? 100 megahertz. So that's why if you're, if you're doing carbon NMR, uh, uh, which would be carbon 13 in that case, uh, you'd actually be sitting right at the frequency of your radio station downtown. So those scanners have to be well shielded. So, hmm. you know, if you're at 9.4 Tesla, you, you want to be well shielded from, from the radio station. So you can actually hear the weak signal that you're trying to detect, which is just a few microvolts. So they're, they're very weak signals, so you 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 have to be well shielded. Hmm. So, but but in proton NMR, I mean in human imaging, most of what happens in radiology that's done uh, using the water line, and we also do people who do MRI also can do spectroscopy, and they'll they'll do phosphorus. And I did lots of work in phosphorus in uh, spectroscopy of the heart uh, in animal models. And this is just listening to other bands than water? Yeah, we're, we're going to different nuclei. So phosphorus, uh, sodium, uh, potassium. Some people are looking at those nuclei. The, the, the more important ones, I think, are, are the proton and uh, nitrogen, carbon. These are the sodium and, and, and uh, potassium are, are important, but it's not commonly used. And then uh, you can do imaging of the lungs uh, uh, using helium MR. I mean, there's, and then there that requires polarization. That's a little more complicated. But the basic idea in, do, in getting an MRI image is, you know, you place the, the person in a, in a big magnetic field and then uh, the, you send a signal that when you place them in a magnetic field, what happens is the spins. So you have, you have, so the theory is a little complicated, maybe for the podcast. But you have you have uh, the, the hydrogen atom uh, has a, a proton, uh, and that proton will align with the field either parallel or anti-parallel. Uh, 
with the magnetic field, it actually processes around the field like a, like a top. Hmm. And then in MR, we, we actually force a transition. We invert the population of the spins, and then we look at it as it relaxes back. But that's kind of complicated, but it's it has some importance, but maybe not not for our podcast. But that's how it's done. You you go in the scanner, and then when you're going into the scanner, for people who have had clinical MRI, you'll hear a lot of noise. You hear thumping and stuff in the scanner, and those are gradients that are going off. You're, we excite the spins with radio uh, frequency, but then we also are encoding the spin spatially so that we can get the image. We want to know where the, where the signal is coming from, and that's done with gradients. So we put currents in these gradient coils that are inside the magnet, and these gradient coils then give us spatial information about where the spin is coming from. That's how we can get the image. Hmm. So we get two things. We get... We get the relaxation behavior of the spin. We, we, we can see how the water is going back to its equilibrium state after we excite it. And that depends on the type of tissue you have. And it can also depend on if you've got a tumor or something like that. That's why MRI is so important clinically. So, that, so the relaxation back to equilibrium, that's what we're looking at. And then we need to find out where that's coming from. So we encode the spins so that they tell us where they're coming from by using these gradients inside the scanner. And when the atoms relax, they give off this light, this radio signal. They give off radio signals very weak, but we, we actually uh, can detect the radio signal. So inside the scanner, there's there's also coils, radio coils, they're, they're basically antennas, mm. radio antennas. That's why we could hear at carbon, we could, uh, if you're at 9.4 set Tesla, we very well can hear the FM station. So in, in at a Tesla, the proton is at 340 megahertz. There's a little equation called the Lamar equation. It's not too complicated. It just tells you the frequency that is uh, that you're going to be detecting is just equal to the gyromagnetic ratio. That's a constant times the strength of the field. So the larger the field, the higher the frequency. There's just the constant there, the gyromagnetic ratio. Mm-hmm. And then, so if you have, so you have mu equals gamma b. That's the equation. Mu equals gamma B. Mu is the frequency, gamma is the gyromagnetic ratio, and B naught is the magnetic field strength. And what the gradients do is to the B naught term, they add little terms that tell us that cause the frequencies to be different at different places inside the magnet. So that's what the gradients are doing. And this so is how you get that be- sort of depth of field. That's how you see what's happening inside the body. Yeah, that's how we see what's happening inside. So an MRI scanner, there are three major components, I guess. There's the magnet itself. Then there's the gradient insert. There's gradients that are, that are it's like a tube that goes inside the magnet. And then inside that, again, then there's, there's coils that are antennas to listen to, to excite the spins. We want to excite them, and then we want to listen to them again. So... So those are the three big components, the magnet, the gradient, and the, and the, the, the receiver coils or the transmitter coils. And how is it that listening to the water inside of a body can tell you information about the pathology of that body? Yeah, because, well, there are two properties of water called, now you get into NMR theory a little bit, but they're called uh, T1 and T2 relaxation. So once we take the spins and we excite them, they actually uh, they actually uh, 
enter, they're, they're normally processing along the z-axis. The z-axis is lined up with the magnetic field, and they process like a top around the z-axis, and then and then we, we mutate them away from that axis and put them in the xy plane. And when they're in the xy plane, they want to do two things. One of the, the first thing they want to do is dephase with one another. That's called T2 relaxation. And the second thing they want to do is they want to go back to equilibrium. So they want to, they have T1 relaxation. And we'll, that's also, uh, it's a very important T1 relaxation because it's a thermal process that, that relaxes the spin. That it requires an interaction with the lattice that, that the spin is finding itself in. But so, so how is MRI, it? MRI has a lot of physics associated with it that most people don't realize. Like I used to teach graduate students in physics used to come and take my course in MRI, but they were getting PhDs in physics, but they still took graduate classes in MRI because there's a lot of physics in MRI. And I want to get to the sort of the story of all of the physics that went into the development of the MRI, the entire history. But before we do, I have sort of this, I think that it's a conceptual question. How is it that by looking at the water in the body, which is pretty much everywhere in the body, why does it tell you about something being wrong? Yeah. So what happens is that, so there's these two processes. I started to tell you, and then I kind of lost my train of thought, I guess. So there's two processes, T1 and T2 relaxation. And so what happens is you excite the spins. And in normal tissue, we know the rate at which this, you know, there's a rate at which the, the, the relaxation will take back place back to equilibrium. It's the baseline. And what, happens, and what happens is that in cancer, the rates are different. Do you know why? Discovered that in 1971, he published a paper in Science where he said that the, the relaxation properties between tumorous tissue and normal tissue were different. And that was the big, uh, one of the big uh, pushes or people recognized that this would be very important to study in the human being, that you, you might be able to diagnose tumors non-invasively. And of course, that's that's what happened. MRI became an extremely powerful means of looking at not only at tumors, but uh, now they, we do all, people that do MRI do all kinds of things, the diffusion-weighted imaging. I mean, it's all the functional imaging where it, the person can be given images and they're looking at images and then that activates their, their uh, visual cortex in the back of their head, their occipital lobe. And then, so, that, so then you... Uh, it's a hugely important and flow in blood flow in those regions in small cap in small vessels, but very small vessels. So and, you uh, can see everything from compositional changes to structural integrity changes. Yeah, there's all kinds of things. MRI is is such a powerful method. I mean, you it's I got into it because you could see biochemistry inside the living cell. And so when I was a graduate student in the early 80s. You know, people at Oxford and were doing, they were doing biochemistry on living cells, you know, in England. And a few groups in the U.S. were starting to do that. Uh, Bob Schulman at Yale, there were, there were several, and, and they were looking at living cells. And I, I was thinking, wow, this is really the way to go. And, and that's how I got in independently, by the way. Nobody in my, I was doing my PhD at Iowa State, and people there weren't really interested in looking at biochemistry using MR in the living cell. But I was, I thought it was just the future to see biochemistry non-invasively. And like, for instance, in the heart, I mean, you could see all kinds of biochemical changes if the heart's under ischemia, 
if it has ischemic injury or if it goes into heart failure, there's all kinds of biochemistry that goes on. You could sample it within a month. And you could also, like, for instance, I did the, I used to do work on monitoring uh, what happens in the TCA cycle. You know, how does your heart, what does it eat in response to work? Like, hmm. if you take a heart and you make it work, what happens to it? And, hmm. and what happens is the heart is, when it's a low rate pressure products, it's not working too hard. It kind of will eat anything. It's not too fussy. Uh, but, but, and this is, this is true in animals. And then when you go up in rate pressure products, what happens is the heart gets very selective and then it, it wants fats. And we, we saw this where it's turning off some, some metabolites and turning on others as a function of work. So these are, these are things that you can only really do with NMR, you know, to, to look at rate pressure product changes in a living organism. And, and how is the heart, you know, like, but like the rates of, of like, I discovered uh, that the rate of creatine kinase, which is an enzyme inside the heart, changes from the outside of the heart to the inside of the heart. There's actually a change in the rate at which the enzyme was happening in animal models. So you see a lot of things about, uh, you know, about biochemistry in the living organ. And it's not like it's like you can view the dynamics spatially all of a sudden right. you do you do you view the dynamics spatially uh, and so there's there's always been continuous pushes to in especially in phosphorus nmr and proton nmr because in addition to water there's other metabolites right in your brain you have n-acetyl aspartate creatine going all these things and you can you can actually get signals from these things and 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 make maps of, of the brain as the what's your acetyl aspartate distribution cycling and proteins it, basically it's, it's a it's an enormous field and there's people the creativity of nmr scientists of mri scientists is uh, pretty amazing some of the things that i've seen happen in the next in the last 30 years it's really phenomenal what can be done now with mri so so that actually led to you pursuing two different PhDs, if I recall correctly. Yes. So I, would, I started, I went, I did my graduate school at Iowa State University. And I actually started working with David Metzler, who was a very well-known biochemist. He had worked on the mechanism of action of vitamin B6, and he had written an important textbook on biochemistry, which, had, which was used in many very good graduate schools. Uh, most people often, when, especially medical students, they they learned from Leninger, it's a common book, or Stryer, but Messer was a, a book that was well known because it really focused on mechanisms of action. And uh, he cared about, you know, when in vitamin B6, you know, how the substrate, how the electrons are flowing in these reactions and so on. So it was a very, very detailed faculty member. And I did my master's with him. And then I was, I defended my master's and I had basically done all my work for a PhD in, in uh, biochemistry. I mean, coursework, I was done my coursework. And then, uh, but then he gave me a project and unfortunately David's deceased now, but he was a good man, but he gave me a project where he wanted me to measure uh, a PKA, which is a dissociation constant for, for a proton deep inside the active site of an enzyme called aspartate aminotransferase, which is important in the heart. And uh, we used to isolate this enzyme from the pig heart and uh, go to the slaughterhouse and get 200 baby parts and then Whoa. get this enzyme. And then David was one of the, was involved in crystallizing the enzyme, getting the x-ray 
diffraction for that enzyme. And then, in, so that enzyme, which is quite important in your heart, uh, it binds uh, vitamin B6. And David wanted to know, well, what's the pKa of the, of the amino acid down here that's helping to bind this uh, vitamin B6? And I told him, I said, Dave, nobody cares. I mean, if I, if, I, if I do a PhD on this, and I'll give you the answer, there's only a few people in the world who will care. You're one of them. And I, and I told them, well, now people are doing biochemistry in vivo with NMR at Oxford. We should do in vivo biochemistry. And Dave was against it. And I said, well, okay, well, then I'm leaving. I'm not, I'm not going to do a PhD to measure that, that PKA. Wow. And then, uh, then I, I went to a, actually, I went to an electron microscopist, George Brown in, in zoology, who was an electron microscopist. And he had a beautiful model of sperm cells from Limulus polyphemus and these sperm cells, when they get, so this is a horseshoe crab. And, and uh, what happens is the, the female lays the eggs and then the eggs release a protein in the sea. And then when the, when the male comes, the protein uh, binds to the sperm of the male and the sperm swim towards the area of increased concentration. That's how they find the egg in the ocean. So by using this peptide, which you can get from a female, and you can add it to the to the spermatozoa, you can actually make the spermatozoa swim. So it was just a beautiful model to study bioenergetics inside the sperm cell in a very uh, well well controlled setting. So you know, I I told him I said, well, George, we can do NMR on these cells, you know. And he goes, what's NMR? What do I want to do that for? And I and because like I said, he was an electron microscopist, was very open minded, and I and so he took me in as a as a zoology graduate student. Now, of course, I didn't have any money, so he didn't have any money either. So what I did was I went to the dean of the graduate school and I said, can you give me a stipend to <laughs> to do work in zoology doing NMR? And it was, you know, graduate students don't do that. You don't go to the dean and ask for money. So I, anyhow, I did. And he, he, he said, well, Pierre, why don't you write me a proposal? And we'll see what I can do. So I wrote him a proposal and he funded me for two years to do, to do work. So I got an RA. And in that department in zoology, nobody had an RA. It was very rare to be on an RA. Most people were teaching. They had TAs, you know, they were teaching assistants. But I got a research assistantship. Directly from the restaurants, mm, and that's very <laughs> so, different so, from today. And then, and then they had a, well, I, the whole thing is now I was doing zoology, and I it's fine, it's a very interesting science. But I never wanted to be a zoologist, mm. you know, I wanted to be a biochemist. Mm. So, <laughs> when I took my master's exam, there was an inorganic chemist, a bioinorganic chemist on the committee, and his name was Don Kurtz, and uh, he ended up becoming a chair of chemistry. Uh, I can't remember where it was, Austin, I think, but somewhere down south. But uh, anyhow, Don was a very nice guy, and he, he had served on my master's committee. And I said, you know, Don, could, would you permit me to do a PhD in, in inorganic chemistry as well as, as well as zoology? Well, can I double major? And he said, well, Pierre, nobody double majors. <laughs> You're crazy. She's like, you can, but I don't know. But that was the way to become a biochemist. So, so what I did was, I, they, so Don said, well, Pierre, I, you know, I'm interested in these sepunculate worms. So there, there's these worms also in the ocean. They're called sepunculate worms. And these worms, instead of having hemoglobin, 
inside their red blood cells, they have an unusual protein called chemerythrin, but it has two irons on it, and it binds the iron, and the oxygen end on, on the two, uh, on, against the two uh, iron atoms. And he wanted to know, you know, biochemists know that there's, in human cells, there's an effector of oxygen binding called 2,3-DPG, and uh, that affects how the human hemoglobin binds oxygen. And he wanted to know if this happened in the subunculate worm. So what I did was he said, Pierre, if you can give me a phosphorus spectrum of the subunculate worm red blood cell, I'll take you on your fashion suit. So I, I ordered some words and cut them up, took the red blood cells, and then put them in an MR tube. And I, I pulsed the scanner at phosphorus. And I got this huge pre-induction decay, a huge signal. And Fourier uh, transformed it, which is just a man mathematical manipulation and then I got all these phosphorus peaks in there and I talked into him and he and he goes, what are these? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll take you I'll take you on as a soon. And in that, in those red blood cells, I found the compound uh two amino ethyl phosphonate and that acted in the subunculate like 2-3-DPG in the red blood cells. So for the bioinorganic part of that PhD, I had to take the, uh, the hemerythrin, purify it, and then uh, add, a, I had a, a, a device where I can add a very small aliquot of oxygen to it and see and measure, uh, measure the absorption of, of the hemerythrin. And you, you could actually measure uh, what happened in terms of uh, the oxygen affinity for the protein with and without 2-AEP. And then we were able to see that, yeah, Okay, this is an effector of hemerythrin. So, so for the but but the craziness about this double major is, you know, I kind of had like two separate committees. So I had the zoology part working on sperm cells, and then the, the other part, and then I had to take the the preliminary exams for inorganic chemistry. So when I joined zoology, I immediately started taking inorganic chemistry classes. And That's amazing. In the end. I finished the whole thing with a double major in four years. That's my wow. master's and my PhD. Wow. So I worked like a dog. I was always in the, in the scanner room collecting spectra. And I, I owe a lot to, to these two people, George Brown and Don Kurtz. I mean, they were just wonderful. Well, they believed that you could do well, it, my, something that was kind of, they believed yeah. that you could do something that was well outside the scope of what was being done around you, right? A double major. Right. There's nothing like that being done at Iowa State. It's a very, very good university. Actually, Gilman, which is the father of uh, American inorganic chemistry, was at Iowa State. And the, the chemistry building, uh, inorganic chemistry at Iowa State is a very good place to study inorganic chemistry, by the way. And uh, and uh, anyhow, it's a, it's a great university. You know, there's, we have a lot of good universities in America and people Sometimes we, we talk about all oh, the, the Harvards or whatever, but there's good things going on at, at other places that you don't hear the name so much. But I was thinking. It sounds like a student at one of these schools would have a little bit more ability to pick and choose. Because if you go to a place like Harvard and you tell your boss that you don't want to do what they want you to do, they might be less amenable than they are at a school where. You know, well, I did have I did have to leave biochemistry, right? I did have to leave, and that's and, true. And uh, it was unfortunate. I, I now it's an interesting thing about Dave Metzler because 
Well, there's a very, very good MRI scientist called Camille Uberville. He's at the University of Minnesota. He's one of the world leaders. And what Camille, Camille had come to give a talk in biochemistry. And he was a young faculty member at the time. And he came to give a talk in biochemistry. And the host was David Messer. But now by then I had left. I was in zoology. But I knew Camille. I really wanted to meet this guy. So I went to David. And I said, you know, David, uh, Camille Ugerville is coming here to give a talk. And I'd really like to meet him. He says, well, you know, Pierre, I, he, somebody's supposed to take him out to dinner. And nobody's uh, <laughs> being available to take him out. Now, this is just, I just can't believe that I got able to go out to dinner with Camille Ugerville. Because, I mean, really, professors should have taken him out to dinner. I mean, he's a very, very distinguished scientist, even before he came to uh even before, even before he came to Iowa State, I mean, I think he had been he had given lectures at the Nobel conferences where they give the Nobel Prize. And stuff. I mean, this guy, Camille Lugerville, is just a fantastic scientist. So I, I, I said, uh, so I got to go to lunch. I got to go take Camille out to dinner, and then so how I got so then my career how it developed after that is Camille. I worked at the University of Minnesota. He had come. I, I, he had worked for Bob Schulman. Uh, I think that was at Yale. I can't, I can't remember where Bob was now. But so Camille had come to Minnesota and he had a very active program doing cardiac spectroscopy, which I would see. He had good interactions uh, with uh, both people in cardiology and people in surgery. And so I called him up when I got close to being done. I called him up. I said, Camille, do you have a postdoc for me? And he remembered me and he, he said, well, I just gave my last one away. And then he found, he talked to cardiology and then cardiology found, funded me to, to go up. So I got to go. And the other guy who he had just given the postdoc to was Michael Garwood, which if you look up Michael Garwood, he, he's an excellent scientist as well. So, so, you know, Mike went on to a distinguished career with Camille and then I came there uh, and then kind of Mike was a theoretician and, and I did more uh, spectroscopy in, uh, on first on rat hearts and then other animal models. And so is that, that where, is during uh, your post talk where you started building things for the first time? When did yeah, you actually start where, on the engineering well, side? Yeah, that's where I started uh, getting some understanding of the engineering of, of MR. But then I, I was I was not well. I was thinking, well, maybe I should just leave science. I, I never thought it was good enough to be a professor, by the way. So I, I, I wanted to, maybe I should just leave science. And after two years, I told Camille, well, after a year and a half, I told him I was going to go apply to medical school and go to medicine. So he wrote me a letter and I got accepted to medical school. But then after I got accepted, he said, well, Pierre, can you stay here and be a postdoc for another year, a third year of postdoc? And he really did need me. I mean, he had so much work to do, and he had an NIH grant and stuff. And I, and I said, okay, fine, Camille, I'll, I'll do it. And he said, you know, Pierre, you really shouldn't be uh, go and be a physician. You should become a scientist. Go be a professor. You're too good to be a physician. Well, I, that's what he said. I mean, I'm not saying that. It had never occurred to me to become a faculty member. I never thought I was good enough. And so I... What did you plan to do? I mean, I guess you, you planned I was, to... I was school. medical school, and then, you know... Uh, my dad had been a physician, so I was, okay, I got his PhD. Now it was interesting, but I'll, I'll go to medical school because I'm really not good enough to be a faculty member. Yeah. yeah. But in the end, I, you know, <laughs> I ended up having a beautiful career. 
So well, that's I'm, kind of how these things go, right? Where doors open and you meet people and they depend on you and they push you in these directions. And then you look back and you realize that it was instrumental to everything that you had done, these sorts of small right. pushes. Yeah, it's a bunch of small pushes. I mean, even as an undergraduate, you know, I took a, I took physics course. I was, I was a general science major, so I ended up doing this. But, but I was a general science major, but I, I love taking the harder courses. So, you know, I took modern physics and calculus-based physics in the, in the sophomore level modern physics course where, where we learn about thermal radiation, black body radiation, you know. So my life was, it was kind of interesting that things kind of moved me towards where I would where I would yeah. end up. Did one of the things is I also always had an interest in all of science. There was so just the way I was trained, there for me there was never a boundary, you know, it's okay, biochemistry, zoology, and organic chemistry. I ended up training people in physics, like I said. So it, it's all related. And NMR is a very nuclear magnetic resonance, which is the, the sister technique of MRI, is it's very uh, there's a lot of physics in it. So yeah. So um, hold on. Can we trace? Can we trace this line between NMR and MRI? Because at the culmination of the story is that you direct the assembly and development of the first eight Tesla MRI. But right. you start by doing NMR of the right. spermatozoa. And so what was what was the the sort of the progression there? So then when I went to Minnesota, then I was doing work on the heart and uh, and, and the work was very well received. I mean, Camille was a good, he, he's a very intelligent man and he had very focused science and uh, he, he taught me a lot. And uh, my, when I would go to conferences, I mean, Camille was his, our Camille's group, our group at the time was always competing. You know, his abstracts would be against what's going on at Oxford and what's going on at Harvard in the heart. Right. So there were, there were people in those places, George Rada at Harvard and, at Oxford and uh, Joanne Ingwall at Harvard, they were they were working on the heart, and uh, and and you know I would submit abstracts. My abstracts would always be you know next to people that were at Harvard or Oxford. So when I got done my my PhD, Camille said, "Well, my postdoc, Camille said, well, why don't you become a professor?" I said, "I'll never get a job," and he said, "Well, why don't you apply?" <laughs> so I sent out some letters, and that fall, which was the, the which been the fall of '88. I, I was receiving so many offers for the, for to visit universities. I was going somewhere almost every week. So the, the funny one, now we're, we're digressing a little bit, but I never told this story. So the first one was at the University of Chicago. So I sent a letter and the, the chair of radiology at the University of Chicago calls me back and says, Pierre, we want you to, we want you to come and interview. And, and, I, and I didn't even have any slides. He said, I want you to be here. And I, I can't remember, like it was in two days. You know, I'll send you a ticket and come on and be the Department of Radiology at the University of Chicago. So I, I didn't have any slides. I said, okay, you know what? <laughs> I have to work on my talk. So I, I, I hurried up, got some slides done quick, and I rushed them through, and then uh, flew to Chicago. I had never really traveled too much. You know, it might have been one of my first plane rides. And so we flew, I flew from Minnesota to O'Hare. And when I got there, a limousine picked me up, and they brought me downtown. A limousine? Oh, beautiful. Wow. <laughs> right in front of the water tower. And when I walked into my room, it said Suite 500. And I'll always remember this place because it had like 
seven telephones and three bathrooms. It was just unbelievable. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is the big time. I'm not ready for this. So what I did is I called the bellboy and I said, do you mind listening to my talk? He <laughs> 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 listened to my talk and I, I practiced my talk. Then I would give it the, the University Amazing. of Chicago the next day. And then of course they, they, they wanted to make me an offer. And then after that, it was, I had many other places uh, where, where I interviewed. And it, at one of the places was the first 4T in the world. So now I was, I had worked on an animal scanner. It was 4.7 Tesla, but it was doing animal research for heart. And then the world's first 4 Tesla scanner was about to come to the University of Alabama. And there was a one. The and what year is this? Pardon? What year is this? This is uh, this is going to be, uh, well, this is 88 when I'm, when I'm discussing this. So what happens is that, uh, so I'm supposed to go to the University of Alabama. They call me up and they say, Pierre, we want you to, we want you to come and interview here for a job. And uh, so this, the, the person was Jerry Povos. He was, uh, he was a cardiologist who had trained at MGH and he was very, very respected in MRI. And it's a good guy. Thank you. So Jerry, Jerry called me up to go to Alabama to work on the first, the world's first Ford Tesla project, human Ford Tesla. And the, the magnet was actually being prepared. It was at Philips in Hamburg in Germany. So he said, well, let's, you need to go to Hamburg and look, go look at the Philips magnet and, and what they're building for us at the Alabama. So he flew me out to Hamburg. And then when I got there, I met with the engineers and stuff. And uh, I came to understand what they were going to do for this Ford Tesla. Now, I wasn't going to be in charge of it. That was, that was going to give, be given to Jan Den Hollander, who's a more senior person. He, he had worked uh, like Dr. Lugerville with uh, Bob Schulman. And uh, so Jan Den Hollander was going to be in charge, and they wanted a, a person who was going to be daily on the magnet. So anyhow, so I went to Hamburg, and uh, that, was, that was quite interesting. When I got back, Jerry, <laughs> Dr. Polos, he was... I think he was the personal cardiologist of the King of Morocco. So one day he calls oh, me did up. Did you say the King of Morocco? No, no, what? Did I meet the King of Morocco? No, did you just say King of Morocco? Yeah, yeah. Okay, he was the personal so cardiologist was, of the King of, Morocco. King of Morocco. So one day he calls me up. He says, Pierre, do you want to come to Morocco? <laughs> I have to go get a physical exam as a king. I really can't. But my wife's pregnant right now. I've got all these interviews. <laughs> So anyhow, so the long and the short of it is... So you were one step up, away, one plane ride away from royalty, is what you're saying. And, I, and I, So I ended up not going to Morocco and not going to Alabama. And mm. uh, the way that happened was... Uh, so, and that job ended up being taken by a very good young scientist, Hobie Hetherington. He took that job and he, and he, he did great with it. So, so, so Hobie went to Alabama. And then what happened to me is I, I had applied to Ohio State as one of these letters, but they never got back to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, all of a sudden, I think it's like in December, they call me up and they say, well, we want you to come and interview at Ohio State. I'm, I'm like, well, you know, I've got this job offer at Alabama. It's the world's first four test of magnet. You guys don't even have anything at Ohio State. You don't have one point. You only have a 1.5 clinical magnet. You, you don't even have a Tesla. <laughs> yeah. Okay? So they didn't really have much. And, and, McKinney said, "Well, Pierre, you're not going to give up a Ford Tesla to go work at Ohio State." Well, so when I, so I ended up, I went to Ohio State and I gave a talk, and there was something very different about Ohio State. So every every other place I went to, I would meet the chair of the department and professors in that department. But when I went out to Ohio State, it was completely different. I had vice presidents, 
I met Art James, the head of the, the, the cancer hospital is named after Dr. James today, the James Cancer Hospital at Ohio State. So I got to meet Art James. I got to meet the deans and the associate deans and uh, the vice president for research. I was meeting all these people. I'm like, what is going on? So I knew it was different. So then uh, the chair of the department, he says, well, would you like to come to Ohio State? I said, well, you don't have anything at Ohio State. <laughs> and he said, well, just write me a letter and tell me what you want. So I, I write them this impossible letter to me. I'm like requesting, well, these are the things that I want. And, uh, you know, it was, it was in the moon, you know, buy me a 4.7 Tesla magazine. This was well over a million dollars I'm asking for as a startup, young assistant professor. I was 28 years old. And, uh, you know, I mean, so I had you know, a whole bunch of points, you know, and, and uh, so they met. That was I went and gave a talk, and then it, on I know of the date. It was December twenty eighth. All the deans, the deans met with uh, the chair of the department, and uh, then I got a letter back from the chairman of radiology that said we agree to all your points. So <laughs> once they agreed, well, you can't say well, I'm not coming. So in the meantime, I had told J Jerry Polos at Alabama that. Uh, uh, he would hear by January 1st because he, he kept he kept waiting for me to make my decision. And he even flew my wife down to Alabama to to try to just by herself to try to get her to oh, wow. Birmingham and, and please come to Alabama. But and, and that would have been quite nice because I would have lived in Hamburg for a year and then you know after living in Hamburg, then I would have gone to Alabama and done the 14 project. And I don't know if Hobie ever did that. I think he he must have gone to the the Harvard as well. So, so anyhow, I ended up staying at Ohio State, and they they had given me this amazing deal for an assistant professor. So when I went there, I, I thought, well, I'm just I'm an assistant professor. Well, okay, that's great at a Big Ten university. That's pretty fantastic. And then, uh, so I they gave me a secretary, and then I, I write my first letter, and the secretary says, well, what are you? And I said, well, I'm an assistant professor of radiology. And she goes, no, no, you're not an assistant professor of radiology. So she goes up to the chairman, and he tells her, he says, no, no, he's the director of MRI research. He's not just a professor of radiology. Mm -hmm. So they put me in the whole research division. So I was 28, and, then it, and probably in hindsight, that was a lot of responsibility for me because I, I probably didn't have the – you can be a great scientist, but it doesn't – and I'm not saying I was a great scientist, but even if you are a great scientist, it doesn't mean you're a good administrator. Those are two different things. And people's skills involved, you make mistakes, and that, that's okay. That's part of you. So yeah, you yeah. learn. You learn over time. But and, and the other thing is, and this is important for a Tesla, is that Dr. Zagernis, which was the dean when I when I got hired at OSU, I told him, I said, Well, you know, Dr. Zagernis, I'm giving up uh I'm giving up a four Tesla magnet if I come to OSU. You know, a Ford Tesla human magnet. And Dr. Zagrenis said, well, well, Pierre, if Ford Tesla ever makes it in, in medical imaging, we'll buy you one. So that was that promise that Dr. Zagrenis made. He didn't say I promise. He just said, we, we'll get you one. And, and later on, that became the incentive to getting us an, an eight Tesla because I went to Dr. Zagrenis one day and I said, well, Dr. Zagrenis, you know, Ford Tesla is making it. And he said, well, let's have a committee and, and, and discuss what we should do. So he, he, he ended up putting Dr. Mazzaferri, who was the head of internal medicine in this committee, to, to examine the problem of should OSU invest in Fort Tesla technology and where to get the money. So they were able to get money from the, the main hospital and the cancer hospital, many groups. 
the, the uh, vice president for research. OSU was unusual because they had one of the first 1.5 Teslas in the world from, from GE. Mm. And there was a professor there called Dr. William Hunter. And Bill had been, he was the director of research before I was, and he had a relationship with Technicare, which was in Northern Ohio. And OSU had signed a contract with Technicare. I think they had signed a contract. They were getting a Technicare scanner. And then Bill reversed it and awarded the contract to General Electric. So instead of getting like a 0.5 Tesla Technicare, I don't know what the field strength was, but it was less than one and a half. They got a one and a half Tesla GE scanner and that came to OSU. And that was the first MRI that came to the university. Hmm. But it came before FDA approval. So it was bought for research. But then, so the, the dean bought it so that they could do research with the scanner. But then it got FDA approval. And now so many patients wanted to get into it that now it, it was moved from the research group to the clinical group. And then the research group lost out on all this potential source of revenue of, you know, from their MRI scanner. Sure. And, and so that's why that's one of the incentives of why the the why they they were open the hospitals were open to giving money to fund up to high field. So when they agreed to this, they they found the money. And I told I went to Dr. Zagurdis and he said, "Well, here we have enough money to to get you a forty. And it was about a million for Tesla. That was the rule of thumb: a million for Tesla. Wow. And then I said, I said. Uh, well, Dr. Zagernis, I mean, if, if you give me this money, can I get a higher field magnet by, for the same amount of capital? Can I get a higher field magnet? He says, Pierre, get whatever you want. We, you can decide and this is how much money you have and you can get a higher field magnet. So that's kind of... <laughs> and that hadn't been built yet is the... Pardon? The higher field magnet hadn't been built yet is the that's subtext right. there. So, but you so just had, happened, you had the sense that you would be able to do it cheaper than market rate? Yes. And where so did that come from? Where did that come was, from? Because you're, you're... I, had, I had figured out that a magnet uh, would. So, okay, so now we, we have to go back. <laughs> but, but because we're, we're, we're a little skipping the history of MRI itself. And we're doing yeah, so this is, this is something that I wanted to get to. So, the, the point that I'm really curious about is that you go from NMR to MRI so smoothly, but that's not necessarily, that might not be clear for everyone who's listening. So can you draw right. the sort of the well, historical uh, lines, covered Damadian, tell yeah, us about the past we could, here. We could start maybe with a little history of MRI. So, so really, uh, an MRI history is, is, is like filled with controversy. The, the first, so the first process is really uh, electron paramagnetic resonance, and uh, that that was actually um, that was discovered by Zavoisky at Kazan uh, University in in the Soviet Union in in uh, in nineteen forty Now before that, in forty one, apparently he he had seen an NMR signal, which is looking at the nucleus. But then he had trouble with it. The field was not homogeneous enough and so on. So he moved to the electron and uh, the, the, uh, the gyromagnetic ratio of the electron is much higher. So it, in a sense, it was an easier experiment to do. And he was the first one to see uh, the resonance process in the electron 
1944. And then a year later, now, of course, he published this. Is the basic idea, just real quick for everybody, the basic idea is sort of manipulating the spin of the electron? Yeah. Yeah. And getting light out of it as a result? And he had done it in copper and in manganese, I think. They they have an unpaired electron. And so he he had manipulated that spin. And then after And you get a radio signal out of it, too. Is that correct? Yes, a higher frequency signal for a given magnetic field strength, you'll get a higher frequency. So typically, EPR, it's a sister technique of NMR. So these techniques are all related. Electron pair magnetic resonance, nuclear magnetic resonance, and MRI. There's a lot of common physics to all of this, okay? So so what happened is... And the commonality, sorry, before you go into this, the commonality is that you take a substance and you excite it and you're able to read the emission spectrum after you've excited it. Yeah, so you take, provided the substance has spin. So for instance, you can't do an MR on carbon-12 because carbon-12 doesn't have a net spin. It's too so you stable. Have to have, you, you, you have to have carbon-13. Mm. So you have to have an unpaired neutron, for instance, if you look at how the, the neutrons and protons pair up in the nucleus of carbon, you'll see that you end up with an unpaired neutron. And so in carbon, you have a, a spin one-half. It's a spin one-half nucleus carbon-13. So you need like in an asymmetry. 12, you need an asymmetry in yeah. the molecule in order to be able to see it move. Otherwise, right. it's basically like a featureless thing that's spinning yeah. that you, you can't You need tell. a quantum mechanical asymmetry. It's more complicated than just this asymmetry. But... There's a a quantum mechanical asymmetry in the nucleus, or for the electron, you have an unpaired electron. So so the nuclei that that NMR people can look at are all the nuclei that that have an unpaired or more, one or more unpaired protons or neutrons. So you can have like, for instance, deuterium, which is a proton and a neutron. You have an unpaired proton and an unpaired neutron. The total spin for that is one, and you can actually do deuterium anymore. And tritium has two protons and uh, two uh, neutron, uh, one neutron, uh, two neutrons and one proton, tritium, two neutrons and one proton. The two, pro- the two neutrons are paired. So it's a spin one half nucleus. Hmm. So, Did so, the EPR discovery draw a lot of attention at the time? No, it was kind of, I mean, within the Soviet Union, it, 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 probably got some attention oh, and, and, and Zavoisky ended up going to Moscow and building an EPR machine in Moscow and proving to them that yeah, EPR does work. But it, interestingly, he never won the Nobel prize for this, right? Mm-hmm. There, so there are three great figures at the beginning of NMR of, of this. There's Zavoisky who did the electron. And then there's two uh, people in the United States. One of them is Felix Bloch, who was of Swiss origin. And Bloch had worked, I mean, he was the first graduate student of Heisenberg, of the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. Mm. And then he had also worked with Niels Bohr, Enrico Fermi, and uh, uh, Pauli. So eventually, he, Felix Bloch was born in Switzerland, and then he eventually came to the United States and uh, settled at Stanford. And then he was, he was involved in Los Alamos in the Second World War. He didn't like it, apparently. And then he ended up going to Harvard briefly, where they were working on radar. They had a radar development group there. And he briefly went there. And in that same group, probably, that's where Ed Purcell was. So radar, microwave, this was microwave radar. Ed Purcell was working 
on microwave radar with uh, Tori and Pound at Harvard. So the Nobel Prize for NMR ends up going to uh, Block and Purcell. And the, the key equations in NMR are called the Block equation. Still to this day, we use them. We use those equations in NMR. We use them in MRI. Okay, so Block and Purcell, they, they, they go together. Now, the interesting thing about uh, Felix Block, he, he recognized that MRI NMR was a thermal process. And we'll, we'll talk about that maybe at another time. But he talked about MRI being a thermal process. And so that's important because my, my career, of course, took me away from MRI eventually into astronomy. People just wonder, well, how did he ever get there? <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. But, well, yeah, what's really fascinating already is that you see a crosstalk between engineers who are working on, I mean, were these guys even aware that these were going to have medical applications? It seems like they're no, working they, on I radar, know, right? Yeah. But this technology, yeah, they, the knowledge yeah, applies both ways. Yeah, they were going to do physics with it and chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. So most people would take organic chemistry. They learn a little bit about NMR spectroscopy for their organic exams. For characterizing and, compounds. I mean, that's basically compounds. what it was invented for, right? And, and with, with NMR, in solution NMR, you can take proteins and you can measure distances between atoms inside proteins. It's very important for 3D characterization. So Nobel Prizes have been given for that as well. So... So, but but of the two of these three people, Zavoisky, Block, and Purcell, all of them were interested in radar type technology, right? Mm -hmm. And Purcell had worked on radar during the Second World War. He worked on microwave development during the Second World War. So, what did he do? So he wins the Nobel Prize for NMR. But a year before that, he discovers the twenty-one centimeter line in the galaxy. So he he builds a horn and and. And this shows you how close NMR is to radio astronomy. And most people don't realize how close it is, you know, but we have all the same equipment after the antenna. Our sample is different, but, you know, we have pre-amplifiers and amplifiers. And, and the basic it, idea is that you're listening for this radio signal that's right, being emitted from your sample at the end of the day. And not only yeah. listening and for both, the radio signal. Yeah. So the MRI signal, we control it, but it's not a powerful signal, especially if you're looking at solution NMR. It's not necessarily a powerful signal. Not everything is 110 molar, right? Things in the cell are millimolar or less. So, you know, you, you, like ATP, adenosine triphosphate is about 10 millimolar in the cell. So you don't have a lot of these compounds. So these are weak signals, right? And you have so to try to reconstruct what the signal actually is coming from. And that's kind of a yeah, similarity well, as well, right? Both MRI and, and radio astronomy, they, they look at weak signals. And, and they're the, the engineering part of, of the received part has a lot of similarities. So, you know, it, and that's why you see it in the, in the, in the person of Ed Purcell. He had unified in his person, NMR and radio astronomy. You know, he did both. And he, he discovered the 21 centimeter line uh, just uh, a year before he won the Nobel Prize for NMR. So nobody can dispute that an NMR person can understand radio astronomy. I mean, that's- The 21 centimeter line is probably worth a Nobel Prize by itself. I just let that go because people who understand NMR, they, they can see why is, why is it that an imaging person is interested in imaging in radio astronomy or questions that you'd never think this guy should ever be doing this stuff. That's, that's, that's okay. 
it, people who understand the science, they can see the link, especially if they have good formation and, and that they understand that NMR is a thermal process and stuff. I mean, I'm not saying that everybody can see it, but I think uh, some of the better scientists, they, 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 they understand the link. So I'm not, <laughs> I don't worry about that when I get attacked for not being a radio, not being an astronomer, it doesn't bother me the slightest. Mm -hmm. So, so, so who, was the, who really decided to start pointing these things at human beings? Or actually, let's start with animals, because it started with animals first, right? So you uh, went well, from NMR of proteins and looking at binding interactions, and well, then... There was, there was kind of a drive towards humans almost right away. Hmm. Huh. I, I think, I think uh, people were looking at isolated cells, for instance, red blood cells, human red blood cells. Uh, at Oxford, people had, I think, 73, 76, kind of in those years, people had looked at human red blood cells. And Raymond Damanian, who had proposed in 1969, he, he proposed that we should use NMR to do build an NMR scanner for humans. He wanted to put humans in the scanner. And what's the, the people, I mean, so the, the story gets, there gets to be a little controversy here, right? Because Raymond, he ended up writing a paper, I think it was in 73, uh, where, where he, uh, no, it was in 71, where he first demonstrated that, that tumors will have different relaxation times. And that was extremely important. That was published in science. And this and, was theoretical though, right? No, no, that was experimental. This is experimental. So he was looking with NMR at tumor cells versus healthy cells? Yeah, he was a physician. He was looking at tuber samples and regular samples, and he was saying that the relaxation properties are different here. And he he managed to publish this in Science, and that was that was part of the incentive for people like Paul Lauterberg, who won, and I knew Paul well. I, I met all these people, Raymond and Paul Raymond Damadian and Paul Lauterberg and uh, Peter Mansfield, uh, mostly Paul Lauterberg, and I, I did meet Raymond. Pretty extensively, actually, uh, Raymond Damadian. I mean, Raymond Damadian is an interesting character. I mean, he was a physician. He wanted to bring this to medicine, and uh, he built a magnet. And that magnet is today, it's, it's at the Smithsonian Institution, hmm. but uh, as the first NMR scan, MRI scanner for humans. But, but he never really got a good image from the human. And, uh, but he did measure the T1s and T2s. I mean, he made a fundamental discovery here, which was very important. So when the Nobel Prize came, it actually didn't go to Raymond. It went to Paul Lauterber and Peter Mansfield. And there's some speculation as to why Raymond never got the Nobel Prize. And of course, you have to remember now, to win the Nobel Prize, you have to have friends. So mm -hmm. people have to nominate you, right? And yep. Some people know Raymond, maybe he didn't have too many friends. I mean, I don't have too many friends in science. If you you know, sometimes it's like if you're going to make an omelet, you're going to break some eggs and maybe you have a lot of enemies. It's really irrelevant. Life is so short. I'm already 61 and life is so short. If, you, if you're so focused, it's like I always say, right, if you're an assistant professor, you're worthy about getting tenure. You want to get tenure. You want to become an associate professor. So you don't want to rock the boat, right? So, so you got to worry about becoming an associate. And then if you're an associate, well, then you want to become a full professor. So you you're not going to rock the boat again because you want to get your grants and become a full professor. And then 
once you're a full professor, well, now you got a lot of grants, and you got a big group, and you don't want to lose all that. And maybe you'll become a distinguished professor. So it, it just never ends. You you could spend your whole life just fighting for more money and and more grants, and and always not quite doing what's in your heart. Mm-hmm. So that's a danger of academia that a, a lot of people don't realize the pressure that professors are under to to get to the next level, and they get bigger and bigger groups, and they have to manage these groups. And, you know, and I've been I've been thankfully delivered from all that. I mean, it's it's important, and that's the way science functions. But if you're really going to change science, you, you can't worry about these things. You have to just look. You're going to do it, and whether people like you or hate you, it's, it's irrelevant. You just write your papers, give your ideas, and there's a thing about human ideas. You know, once you put an idea in a person's mind, you know, like I've said, the sun is condensed matter, right? Well, at first, people, you know, they, 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 they'll have that effect, the Semmelweis effect, right? It's, and I, the Semmelweis reaction is, you know, you don't believe it. It's an attack on the paradigm shift, it's, it, on the paradigm. And so there's a shift and it's attacking your dogma. And so there, there's actually a Semmelweis effect. And the Semmelweis effect is named for Ignaz Semmelweis, who was the the Hungarian physician who recommended hand washing as a way to prevent, I think it was women from dying in childbirth, right? Right. And he was basically laughed at. Yeah, he was railroaded by his colleagues. And I I, I dedicated a talk to Semmelweis. He was the the father of of, uh, uh, sanitary techniques. So what what physicians used to do is they used to go from the necropsy lab, they're dissecting bodies, right? And then they go from there to delivering a child. So what happens is now they bring disease, they bring bacteria from the cadaver to the woman and then she dies. So this was this this was called childbed fever back in those days. And, and people didn't want to hear that. And well what ha- was what happened was some of these realize that maybe there's a problem here because the midwives, so so patients got to be scared to go to the physicians because they were dying there, but they weren't dying with the midwives. So because the midwives, of course, weren't doing autopsies, right? Mm. So so anyhow, so Semmelweis was, he was quite astute. I think within three years, he figured out that, hey, uh, you know, maybe we should wash our hands and sterilize our instruments and all that. And then he he got the he got the mortality rate to drop in the hospital, but then you know he was politically he was thrown out. I think it was Vienna at first, and then he was thrown out, and then he I think he went to Budapest, and then anyhow, so that that hospital also had problems with childbirth fever and and childbed fever. So so eventually he he gets sent to an asylum by his colleagues, and he dies in an insane asylum, and he is a father of of you know, sanitary methods and medicine. I mean, that's why people wash their hands and wear masks. It's because of Semmelweis. And he died beaten by his guards, you know, after being being beaten by his guards. Why do you think people are so reluctant to consider the idea? Right. And they felt insulted. Apparently Semmelweis was quite hard on them. Mm. Mm, I see. And this comes back to the idea of needing to have friends. Because we talk about this all the time, me and Mickey where it seems like ideas require an enormous amount of politics to some degree, because... Well, it depends what, which path you want to take. Right. right. I, do you want the Nobel, or do you, is it just the idea that's important? And I think that so Damadian really struggled with this, right? Because he took out... He wrote up 
uh, articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post about the fact that he was wronged by the Nobel Committee for not having right. gotten... Because it's, it's incredibly unusual to not win the Nobel Prize when you are the discoverer of an effect. Or right. a technology that I mean, scale. The Nobel Prize, you know, it could go to up to three people, right? But yeah. they chose to give it only to, to Paul Lauderer and Peter Mansfield, and, and Raymond didn't, didn't get it. I mean, that's and, enough to drive someone to insanity. Well, I don't think so. Raymond... Now Raymond, he ran he ran a company called Fonar, which ended up suing places like General Electric and mm. Siemens for patent violation because he had patented the the relaxation effect, and he got millions of dollars for Fonar through his patents, and that's one of the reasons people didn't like him. Mm. And and then, then there's speculation, you know, that you know I went to Fonar and and Raymond was a very religious person and. And you know, they they at Fonar you started the day with prayer. When I went to when when I went to Fonar, that's how it started. I imagine they weren't and, doing that at GE. Pardon? I imagine they weren't starting the day with prayer at GE. Probably not. <laughs> but I think I think Raymond was he was a very good man, and I think that it's a it's a sad note in his in the history of science that he didn't he didn't share it, especially that there was room for three. And so and what Paul, did Lauterberg add to the mix how did paul lauderber add to the mix so 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 raymond had an idea of getting a signal by by changing the position of the patient in the magnetic field so he he thought well there will be just a little small sweet spot of the magnetic field and by moving the patient around the sweet spot of the magnetic field we'll get an image well nobody does it that way that's not how it's done so you have a very homogeneous magnetic field. So you want to place the body in a, in a big magnet and the field is very homogeneous. So for over 40 centimeters or so, uh, 40 centimeters sphere, it's quite homogeneous. And then what you do is you superimpose gradient fields on top of that to get the inhomogeneity. So, so what Paul did was he used the gradient method. He imposed the gradient method for the first time well, actually, he was not because Robert Dial was Gabriel was the first person. Robert Gabriel in France was the first person to propose this in 1952, and then he did that in his PhD thesis. But Paul, it was probably unknown to Paul, and Paul did it at Stony Brook, and then he sent the paper, I think, to Nature, and then it was initially rejected, and then he fought with them to. Hey, don't reject this paper. This is important. And eventually the paper went in. Hmm. So and he sort of added some functionality to the setup. He added some functionality. The, the method was called projection reconstruction. And if you look at the paper, it's on a capillary. And there was something missing called slice selection. He, he didn't have the, the ability to select the slice. Hmm. So he, he was actually imaging a capillary. And when you cut the capillary, you know, no matter where you cut it, you get the same the same cut along the z-axis if you align the capillary with the z-axis so he didn't have to select a slice but in medicine we actually have to select a slice so people don't do projection reconstruction to get an mr image but and that's that's what uh so so but paul what paul did was he used the gradient to encode the spins that was extremely important and that's how we do it we have a readout gradient and then we encode the spins and that came from paul and then uh, for Peter, Peter Mansfield, what he did was 
he uh, utilized the echo. There's, there's in, in MRI, there's something called an echo. We generate an echo and, and that's extremely important. We phase encode and we, and we generate these echoes and, and uh, that came from Peter Mansfield. And Peter Mansfield was the first person, he, he imaged the finger of, I think it was his postdoc, uh, Maudsley, and uh, that was the first human object imaged before animals were imaged. Hmm. So, so, and that was, uh, I, I think it was 1976 where he imaged the finger of Andrew Maudsley. So, so, and then, and then Peter went on to do beautiful stuff in NMR. I mean, not just at the beginning, but then he also did develop echoplanar imaging. And that was extremely important using refocused echoes with the gradient. And then it's, that permits you, that technique permits you to get a, a, an image of the head in just a few milliseconds. And so it's, you can basically freeze motion with it. It's extremely important. So there are many things that, that uh, Peter Mansfield did. So when you look at Nobel Prizes, you know, it's not just one thing. There's a lot of what forces you have, uh, you know, what, what did you contribute overall to the field? And then, and then, well, hopefully people will say, well, okay, this guy maybe should get a Nobel Prize. And unfortunately, not everybody could win. And I don't think it's, it's, I don't think, I think it did hurt Raymond. I mean, he took out the ads and all that, but hopefully he got over it. And, you know, people still know that he had a contribution. People who, who understand the field of magnetic resonance, they, they know that, that uh, Raymond had a contribution. Maybe some people didn't care for him, but, you know, it's science is not just about, I mean, a lot of people like to go out and have beer and make friends with scientists. And I never did that. When I go to na national meetings, like, Basically, I, I went and uh, I, I can't say I never did it, but I didn't pursue it. I went and read abstracts and studied and, you know, and maybe I made a mistake not being, not that many people in MRI would, would say, oh, yeah, I was great, great friends with Pierre. People knew me and I just did my work. And for instance, when the AT was built, we had the first results at AT, the the international meeting in MRI was in Australia that year. Mm. Well, most professors would say, oh gosh, I, I just had the, the world's first eight Tesla images. I'm going to go present them in Australia. But I didn't. I stayed home and worked. And then my group went to Australia and presented the images because I, I felt it was too important and just stay with the scanner. Mm. And well, of I course, it comes down to what your priority is really like these folks, right. like well, if you want to play that popularity contest, it might work out for your career in the short term, but... But it also prevents you from making radical moves, right? Because like you're held me, in place. Yeah, you, you get held in place by your societal forces, right? But for me, I never permitted that. And it's, it's harmony. That's fine. I mean, on a personal level, it harmed me in terms of salaries and friendships and all that. But on a scientific level, it's, it was completely fine because it, it allowed me to, to go into other areas as I wanted and, and uh you know, discover things that I would have not discovered otherwise. So, you know, it's a way you look at science, right? So, like, people can be, some people are conforming and, and some people are, they won't conform. So I was never a conformist. So when I told you the thing about the assistant professor, I never played that game. I didn't care if I got tenured or not. I see. You know, I didn't care. You don't want to tenure me, I'll go, I'll go do something else, you know, and then, 
same with becoming a full professor. You know, I, I really didn't care. I was just going to do my job and, and do imaging. And if I don't get tenured, if I don't make distinguished professors or have a big group, it doesn't matter. I've been blessed in life with a great wife <laughs> and a beautiful family. So, Well, this is one thing we talk about a lot that science gives you the opportunity to do something that's part of a project that spans much more than your lifetime if you want it to. Like, right. it's really a human project. It's a species-level project. And, and science isn't done by one person sitting in a room. It's on the shoulders of giants. You know, you tell the story of the progression from EPR to NMR to MRI. And that story is all about a project that is decades in the making, many careers, multiple generations. Right. And so you look at, you know, it, it, it continues, like if we, if we continue to the road to ultra-high-field MRI, you know, so that didn't happen in a vacuum, right? So before me, you know, there was, I mentioned a Ford Tesla in, in there was a 4.1 Tesla in Alabama, and then NIH ended up getting a Robert Balaban at NIH. I got, General Electric had a Ford Tesla project, and they basically gave it to NIH. It was just, I think it wasn't Schenectady, and I think they just want to get rid of it because it was so it was more than they wanted. I think. So and why the why the obsession with strength? What does strength give you? The higher the field strength, the better the images get. It, well, you have susceptibility issues as well, but uh, you get more signal to noise, so you so uh, you know you you do get better images. So what happened was people were pushing. To go to higher fields, Ford Tesla, and there were four basic, there were four Ford Tesla systems in the world. And uh, I mentioned Bob Balaban at NIH with General Electric. And then Camille Ugerville, who I talked to about before, he had the first Siemens Ford Tesla at Minnesota. And that scanner was just phenomenal. He he did some beautiful functional imaging uh, work on that Ford Tesla, and he and he showed that you know bold contrast, which is the contrast we use in functional imaging. You know, it gets better. If you're at lower field, you're looking at larger vessels. Mm. You know, you're looking at capillaries, they're pretty large. But if you go to if you go to if you go to higher fields, you look at smaller and smaller structures. So the effects of smaller structures. So he's the bold contrast that you see at 1.5 is not the same that you see at four Tesla. And Camille showed that. So that was extremely important. He was doing just phenomenal work. And this gives you more diagnostic power? It, well, it, it gave you the better result, actually. It was, it was not just diagnostic power. You know, you do functional imaging, you look at images, and you activate, let's say you give uh, light activation, and you can see the occipital load light up, mm. and you'll see a different result than one and a half in Fort Tesla. So Camille really pushed that, and he did wonderful work with that. So Camille had done some beautiful work at Fort T, but... And then there was also sorrow at 4T, like Columbia had a 4T magnet. It was one of the first four 4T magnets, but not much ever came out of the Columbia magnet. So, you know, and that's because didn't... they weren't looking at interesting things or just the technology was so hard. So mm. what happened was before the Tesla was built, there was people were very leery about going to ultra high the high higher fields because the four Tesla scanners where they were difficult to operate and there was a lot of lack of success. So Paul Lauderberg, who we talked about Paul, he had won the Nobel Prize, right? 
And he tried to build a, he tried to get a Ford Tesla in, in Illinois and millions of dollars were spent on it. And the magnet never came to field. We never got a Ford Tesla to Illinois. Well, so, so it was very risky. It was very risky. And, and so the, the magnets were expensive to build and there was a lot of money involved. And so there were really only four, four Tesla sites when I built the eight Tesla. And, and, but, but before that, there was something very important that happened. And that was a three Tesla. There was a guy called Joe Helper. He was at Henry Ford Hospital. And Joe, and he ended up getting a three Tesla. Now, the reason that was important is because that magnet was built by a very small company in England called Magnet Scientific. So that was their first magnet that they had built, a human magnet, big enough to put a human, like they built NMR scanners, small bores, you know, you can only put small samples in it. They had done those, but they had never built something like a three Tesla human magnet. So Magnex built that three Tesla for Joe Helper. And when I got, when I decided to get the Tesla, it was Magnex that I went after. So I went to Oxford because Oxford Instruments in Oxford, there's a company called Oxford Instruments, and they were building magnets. So I could buy the magnet from them, or I could go to this new startup place called Magnet Scientific, which is a very small enterprise. And it was run by this great guy called David Rayner. He was the president. And I really love, I, I love Dave Rayner. He was just a, a very decent human being. Yes, he's still alive, but he retired. I I I pray he's still alive. But he's retired. But anyhow, uh, he left. He left Magnus. Eventually, it was sold. But so you were making lots of friends, just not uh, not necessarily at the science. Well, he was an industrial friend. <laughs> but, but I don't know if he was a friend. I mean, I I met him and we negotiated the eight Tesla together. And uh, so so th that was kind of an interesting point because people had said, "Well, look, four Teslas are having a hard time. What are you thinking about going to eight Tesla?" And I gave a talk. I gave a lecture at Harvard, which was about, this is before the Tesla. I, I was just telling them, I'm going to build a Tesla. And people were saying, well, Pierre, you should build a six Tesla first. Why are you building an eight? And I said, well, it's like a Lamborghini, you know, if you go 200 miles an hour, but you don't have to drive 200. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could go, you could go 55. So, so somewhere between eight, four and eight Tesla, there's a field that works. And I said, I can hit every one of them. So if six is the field, the highest field that you can do for human imaging, we'll go to six. And if we could go to eight, we will. So when, so what happened was there, now Magnex was a very small company, okay? They had never built such a magnet. They didn't even have a winding machine. You go, you got to wind these magnets on these big winding machines. They didn't even have one that could wind an eight Tesla magnet. They didn't have a machine that big. Actually, after I ordered the magnet, they ordered a winding machine from Portugal, and then there was a French trucker strike, and we couldn't get the winding machine to the UK so that we could start winding the magnets. But anyhow, so what happened with Dave? Remember the what I was telling you about Dr. Zagrana said, Well, Pierre, you can have so much money and you can buy whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So I had found out that the cost of the conductor, which is the key part of building the magnet, was about a thousand pounds per kilometer. And for a Tesla magnet, we needed 400 kilometers. Wow. Okay. So I had a very good idea of what their costs were. I knew I had a very good idea of what it would cost Magnex to build an A-Tesla magnet. But Magnex, typically when scientists bought magnets, now not, not for just always, when you buy a research magnet, you contract to a company and you say, okay, I'm buying a 9.4 Tesla magnet. Now, if that magnet only goes to 8 Tesla, or seven Tesla, 
Well, you don't pay for it. You get a new one, right? Well, a small company like Magnex could not afford to do that. They, they can't afford to build an 8 Tesla magnet and take a million dollar loss on it, right? Or more than a million. We got to get a winding machine and there's a lot of, you know, so they, they couldn't take a bloodbath on this thing. So what they did was they designed an 8 Tesla magnet. And then I decided to contract with them such that OSU would buy a 6 Tesla magnet. For $1.3 million. $1.3 million, we buy a six Tesla magnet. But for every tenth of a Tesla, about six Tesla that they that they did, they get an extra $25,000. Okay. So it's so it ended up costing $1.83 million by the time it went to Tesla. Okay. So so that was a way that magnets could absorb their cost because when the magnet first came to field in England, because you have to test the magnet before you ship it to make an MRI. So you build an MRI, you build a magnet first, then you put a bunch of stuff together with it to make an MRI scanner. The, the magnet's only one component, but it's the most important one. So what happened was they, they built the magnet and it gets tested in Oxford. And when it got tested, it quenched at 7.35 Tesla. So it never went to Tesla. It, when it reached 7.35 Tesla, it quenched. So what does that mean? So these are superconducting magnets, right? They're they're run they run with helium. There's helium inside the, the magnet, and so what happens is that. And that's to make them more conductive. Yeah. So you cool the magnet. So you have a wire, and it's superconductive. Okay. This is a niobium titanium wire, and so you have a channel. It's a it's a U-shaped channel, and it's made out of copper. And inside that U-shaped channel, there's a wire running. Okay, and there's 400 kilometers of this wire running in a U-shaped copper channel. It's niobium tin, a niobium titanium. So what happens is that you then cool this, you, you wind the magnet, and then you, you put it in helium, and then you put current in it. So for an 8-Tesla magnet, you need 200 amps of current in that magnet to get it to Tesla. It's, it's got so many Henrys, and you put so much current in it, and you're going to get an 8-Tesla magnet out of it. But what happens, so when it's when you have such a such a magnet, it has magnetic stored energy in it. And, and that magnet had 60 megajoules of stored magnetic energy. Mm. Well, if you, you know, I don't know if you're old enough, but when, when you did the years ago, there was a pin drop commercial, you know, for telephone. They, they would just, you could hear a pin drop. So they would take a a pin that, that people use for sewing and they just drop it on the table. Well, that like at and or something. Yeah, so, so that had about one millijoule of energy in it, of kinetic energy, one millijoule. And if you take a locomotive that weighs 200 tons and you send it down the track at 60 miles an hour, it'll have about, it'll have about 60 megajoules of stored energy in it, the same as the magnet, right? Mm. But, but if the wire inside the magnet, you know, when you're putting the energy in the magnet, the wire is under enormous forces and it, the wire wants to move. The, 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 you know, they want to move against each other. And, and they have to be very to carefully aligned in order to maintain the field. Yeah, so if the, if the wire moves, you, you can get a, a disturbance in the wire and you'll get a disturbance on the order of a millijoule. And that's enough to send all the current out of the conductor, out of the superconductor and into the copper. So now the, the current flows out of the conductor into the copper and then it's quenched. Mm. So, so the magnet loses its field completely, okay? And then, and then when you turn it off, it pops back into the original position so it doesn't do it at a lower no. field strength? No, so this is, there's, 
there's something interesting here about magnets. So what happens is, he, he, so when the magnet went up to 7.35 Tesla, a wire moved and it quenched, okay? So likely a wire moved and it quenched. So what happens is that's called a training quench. So, the so then I said, okay, 7.35, I flew to England. I said, okay, it's at 7.35, good enough. So <laughs> it, had, it had actually quenched at 7.37. And then they brought it, they called me up and said, Pierre, it quenched at 7.37. I said, okay, I'll come to England, we'll look at it. And so they, I said, bring it back, who will bring it back up to 7.35, just under the quench point. So they brought it up to 7.35, I flew to England and I accepted it. So then they shipped it to Columbus. And then, so then we, so there, these are called training quenches. This happens with magnets, you know. Once the wire moves, it's assumed that position. So it's not going to move again. It's already moved to the position you want it. So the next time when you re-energize it, you can reach a higher field. So mm. that's what happened. Mm. So we quenched at 7.37 and then... We re-brought it up to 7.35 for testing, and then we discharged it to zero, shipped it to the U.S., and then when it came to the U.S., then it, it was slowly brought up, and it hit a Tesla. So, it, so but once it hit a Tesla, so, so anyhow, so, so remember, that's the pin drop thing, you know? It doesn't take much to quench these magnets, right? And, and all this energy is, can be lost. But once they're stable, then, then they're stable. So... So anyhow, so what happened was that, uh, so I had never done work, you know, I had never, I mean, I had done experimental work with animals, but, and taken images with animals and so on, but I had never done a human image other than one and a half Tesla, which are clinical scanners. A clinical scanner, you just push the button and GE's got it worked out for you. You hardly need to think. You just push the button and it'll collect an image. That's if you're not doing research, you know. They have a protocol and you just push the button and it'll go through and prepare itself and then take the images. So now there's more to it than that, but basically it's not too hard to get an image off a clinical scanner. But a research scanner is very different. Well, you basically have, have to one... program the whole thing yourself from scratch. Well, well there was some programming, and I, I have to say here that I was very blessed that I, I had one of my best postdocs who became a research scientist with me, Amir Abdul-Jalil, Amir Abdul-Jalil. He's retired now, he lives in Orlando, but he was just a phenomenal human being, a great programmer. He was a, he, he trained in physics at OSU and then came and postdoc with me. And then, I, and then he, he, we did a lot of things together. And then he went on to become the major programmer. Now, we, we had bought, uh, so you get components, okay? You're building an IT scanner and you're, you're getting components. So we, we got the magnet from magnets, okay? And then, well, we need amplifiers because now we're going to send radio energy into this thing. And people have said, it's going to take you a lot of energy, Pierre, to collect this image. And as a matter of fact, people thought you would cook the human, the person that went in, you could cook their brain, right? So because so much microwave energy or not microwave, ultra high field energy is going to go into the head, you could have localized heating and you could hurt the person, right? So somebody had to be first, and that was me. I was the first person to be imaged at ultra high field on my head. And, you know, when I went into the magnet, I realized, okay, I might not come out of here with the cerebellum. I have no idea. But, but Did you make a back-of-the-envelope calculation that you were confident uh, that it was going to be okay? Phantoms, and, of course, we were careful. And, I mean, I didn't, I didn't tell them, put 10 kilowatts into my head, you know. <laughs> right at the bottom and try to hit the 90, and, and, and we got a reasonable number. 
but still somebody had to be the first person to do that. And, and when you know, when you don't know if it's going to work and you have a wife and children and now you're going to put your head in an ultra high field scanner and get the first image ever in the world. I, you know, I love science and I showed it in many ways. So, you know, I risk my life for ultra high field and that's, that's a reality, but anyhow, so now getting back to, uh, we were talking about, so I had never, I had never collected an image, you know, at Ford Tesla. I mean, all these Ford Tesla scanners and some of them were having a hard time, you know, like Columbia was having a hard time. And, you know, there were some successes, but also some difficulties at Ford Tesla. There were only four scanners and it wasn't going that well. So what I decided to do was when the scanner hit the eight Tesla, I said, okay, we're done eight Tesla now. We're not going to collect an image. We're going to bring the magnet back down to 4.7. So. I, because four Tesla was the world record. So if I go to 4.7, that's 200 megahertz. So that'll be a new world record in imaging. So let me get my 4.7 Tesla images first. So that's what I did. I brought down the scanner and we immediately, I mean, the magnet arrived, it, was, it arrived on Christmas Eve of 1997, hmm. okay? Christmas Eve of 1997, that's when, that's when it entered the room at Ohio State. I, mean, I was thinking, what a Christmas resident, right? <laughs> we get an ultra-high show back in for Christmas. And so anyhow, so it had arrived. And people thought it would take us years, two, three years to get the first image. Well, within a few months, not, not even six weeks, I think, from the from the time the magnet came to, to OSU, that we got the first image at at 4.7 Tesla might have been two months at most. Wow. And, and that's then, a testament to your team, right? Because that's a group of people. Yeah, I was very fortunate, you know. Now, OSU was a little bit unusual because most places that have high field magnets, there's a lot of professors trained in MRI in those places. But OSU, I was the only... You were it. I was trained in MRI, and the people working on the AP had all been trained by me. So... The, they were my postdocs or my graduate students that I had trained in MR. So there know? wasn't much politics that you had to navigate with a bunch of big fish. It was sort of you had defined the culture at the university when it came to this. And so that must have contributed somewhat to the ability of people to work. Yeah, easily. I don't know. I, I, you know, for whatever it is, I mean, the people that work on the AP uh, have been trained by me. Now we had. We had some people that came from the outside that had experienced. Uh, for instance, I got I got some help from GE. The, GE gave us uh, they gave us surplus stuff like cables and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So the GE gave us some some uh, surplus equipment from old scanners that they had taken off these cables and they were they're going to be shredded. And they said, "Please don't shred them. Just give it to us, and we'll use it for these Tesla." So they gave us radiant cables and so on. And then uh, gradient amplifiers, we got our gradient amplifiers and it was, uh, there were people at Tecron uh, that was a gradient amplifier manufacturer and, uh, and uh, Ken Bradshaw was there and uh, Ken uh, helped us, I mean, to provide to us gradient amplifiers. And uh, so there were some people that, that were involved that weren't trained by me, but they were like for instance, CPC built our amplifiers, our RF amplifiers, and that was a new company too. And uh, CPC, you can look them up. CPC amplifiers today—they're a big, they're a big place. But 
back then they had never built an amplifier that could deliver so much power at at 340 megahertz so so that's another thing that we negotiated to get the first rf amplifiers that could provide a large amount of power for an ultra high field scanner so anyhow but in, in terms of the people who actually collected the images and assembled things for the magnet it was pretty much my group it was one uh, person that had four tests of experience that uh, he was, uh, he had worked, I think, in the Navy. His name was Paul Noah. And Paul had helped Alabama with their front end and uh, their, their TR switches, transmit receive switches. And Paul helped us on this part of the TR switches. And uh, so there, there's, there, we, we, we were blessed. I mean, the parts that, that, needed to fit, you know, what OSU didn't have, Paul gave us, I, I can give Paul some thanks for, for helping us with the front end. But uh, of course, you know, such scanners, they, they involve so much complexity, right? Mm -hmm. And what, what happens is you have to have, you have to be familiar with, very familiar with the engineering of lower scanners before you can go up to something like so after I became a professor, you know, I, I, I just went into hardware very hard and, and I building coils and I spent a lot of time working on coil technology for our research projects, not for the Tesla, for other magnets and, and developed coil technology and, you know, replicated what I knew existed in other places. Okay, I'm going to build this too. So that was one thing I did a lot of it hands-on were building RF coils and that was very important. It became very important for the Tesla that I had that experience, even though uh, OSU had a very powerful group in electrosciences that could calculate coils and, and they were they were building coils in microwave and they ended up helping us theoretically, but that was the, the fruits of that came after the Tesla had already acquired the first image. So the first image we didn't really get contributions from electroscience that that they helped us but later on there were there were contributions that were made there so so you know i had lots of it was the right place at the right time i remember when i came to osu they said well you know pierre it's osu it's a phenomenal university it's like a supermarket you know we have everything <laughs> and, they, and they do osu is a, is a supermarket they, they have it hmm. so anyhow so i so after we went to 4.7 Tesla, then uh, then we got the first 4.7 Tesla images and we had them. And so then I said, okay, well, let's move on to the next, to, let's go up to 8 Tesla. So we went up to 8 Tesla. And I remember this, I, was, I, I told Amir, which I just mentioned to you, mm. I said, Amir, I'm too tired this weekend. I, the magnet was ready to image a 4.7 at 8 Tesla. And I said, I'm just burnt out. I had, my wife and I are going camping this weekend, and I just need a break. I said, we'll start Monday. So, so while I was gone, so Patty and I went uh, camping with our children. And then while I was gone, Amir put a sample in there. Just uh, he, put, he took a coil, and he put a, a ball that contained mineral oil, and he tried to get the 90. Now, this is a measure of how much power it takes to get an image. and uh, when I came back on Monday, he says, oh, Pierre, it's a disaster. He says, I couldn't find the 90. It was, it was, it's way high. So, so he had started like at a, so, so I guess I should go back. 
you know, when ultra when these first four Tesla scanners were were going, you know, it was known that power was moving at the square of the field in MRI on these scanners. And so for those who know some physics, you know, the square of the power increasing with the square of the frequency, that's called the ultraviolet catastrophe. You know, it's it's a disaster in thermal radiation. It just keep you can't the power cannot keep increasing forever. The law doesn't actually hold in that nice simple. Yeah, function. it doesn't. It doesn't hold. So eventually, power has to break. So, the, so the question is, well, where is it going to break? And the four Tesla scanners were using a lot of power. And so, when I built the Tesla, people were saying, well, you know, Pierre, you're going to fry people's brains. And even the chairman of radiology wrote. Dr. Healy was the dean of the College of Medicine at that time. Dr. Zagurns had retired, and Dr. Healy. Uh, who ended up, she ended up eventually leading the Red Cross in the United States, but she was the dean of the College of Medicine. And Dr. My, my chairman actually wrote her a letter that, you know, this scanner might require so much power, people are going to fry their brains in there. It's going to be dangerous. So I went to Dr. Healy. I said, look, just be reassured. We're not going to just take patients and put them in there. We're going to know if we're going to be careful. So, so there was a risk. Now, there's a very important MRI scientist in uh, Berkeley. He's, I think he's retired now, Tom Brunninger. And Tom had a dream of building the world's first 10 Tesla scanner years ago. I think it might even be before the four Teslas were there. I, I don't know exactly the time frame, but I know that it was Tom. And he had this dream of building a, a 10 Tesla scanner. And they had a committee that came apparently and, and told him, well, it, it'll require so much power to get an image that, and Tesla, you know, you, you just kill people. You're going to fry their heads. And then, and then that the, the project would be so expensive, it would take an act of Congress just to get the money to do it. So the 10 Tesla scanner just died. Okay. So that was that was about the time that four Teslas were, were just coming of age. So Tom, even though he was a good scientist, you know, he never got his 10 Tesla, even though he might have made something of it if he had it had the chance to attend this letter. Unfortunately, it never came for him. So anyhow, so we we ended up having this risk of how much power is going to take to get an image. So Amir had tried to get the image, and then I know the date, it was the 25th of March of uh, 1998, and, and he didn't get an image and, and from a phantom, not from a human. And uh, so then when I came into work on Monday, he said, oh, yeah, it's a disaster. And well, what's wrong? And he says, it's just taking so much power up here. We'll never get the image of this. So I said, well, okay, let's go back and we'll, we'll just don't, where, I said, where did you start? He said, well, I started at a kilowatt because people had told us what's moving the square of the field. So it started a kilowatt and just go up. And so he started a kilowatt and went up. And I said, well, let's just start at zero and work our way up. And he, well, let's not start at a kilowatt. But when we get to 90, when we got the 90 watts, it mutated the spins and we had the image. I'm like, oh my gosh, the power is not what I expected. Hmm. And so then uh, at 4.7 Tesla, we it had taken us 330 watts for a four millisecond sink pulse to mutate the spins to get a 90 at, at 4.7 Tesla. And at 8 Tesla, it ended up taking 100 watts for a four millisecond sink. So there was some big change there. And it, wow, what did this mean? I mean, why is it that the power was not what we had expected? So anyhow, so then we discovered in the phantom that the, that the power was not, it wasn't going to move the square of the field. And then eventually, you know, people are still arguing about this. 
it's to me it's it's kind of it's uh you know you know people were saying these scanners would never exist you'd never build a 10 tesla right now uh if you, if you look around the world after the well this maybe we'll go back a little bit so we had the tesla and we got these beautiful images and and so here <laughs> i don't know if you could read this the journal of computer assisted tomography Yes, and, and so this was the 1999 issue of November, December 1999. And after we got the first eight Tesla images, uh, Alan Elster, who was the editor of this journal, I sent him a paper and he says, Pierre, I will take all the eight Tesla images you can send me. <laughs> and so this is like an eight Tesla image. I, I don't know if you guys can see it, but you know, they were just beautiful, beautiful. So so he he in this issue, he published 10 eight Tesla in the, 10 eight Tesla papers back to back in a single issue of the journal of computer assisted tomography. Now these weren't the first image. The first image actually went to NMR and biomedicine, which was a very small journal. So I didn't send it to nature or science. I sent it to a, a paper to a journal that was, it was like a third tier journal in magnetic resonance. I didn't care. I just wanted the image published. I don't want to argue with you guys about it. And when, when, when the review came back on the first paper, they wanted me to remove the last paragraph. I said, look, either the last paragraph stays in to get the paper, or if you want me to take the last paragraph out, I'm going to submit it somewhere else. So they took the last paragraph, and it was submitted, and it went to NMR and biomedicine. What did the last, last paragraph, paragraph say? Yeah. The last paragraph talks about NMR as a thermal process. So, mm. And so this so leads then, us neatly. This is a theoretical advancement. Yeah. yeah so, so then... So then, so we had these 10 papers in the Journal of Computer Tomography back to back. And then back in those days, so now we're in 1999. So, so we, we're collecting images and stuff. And, and now the, the papers are being submitted. And, and, you know, we had like 20 or 30 papers at AT before the first seven Tesla papers ever came out. So, and one of the things we showed is the phenomenal signal to noise. So at first I thought the scanner didn't have, there's something wrong with the signal noise, it's too low. And I won't tell you what happened because I'm the there were there was something that happened there and it would not reflect good on others. So I won't discuss why it was that the signal to noise was too low because uh, eventually I found out what it was and we corrected it and fixed it. And uh, people don't need to know. We know that the signal to noise was high. And so what happened was. You know, back in those days, there was the 2K fear, you know? So Y2K, you know? The year 2000 was coming, and then they were going to have Y2K, and the world was going to stop rotating. So, so what happened was I decided to collect the world's first very high-resolution images of the head. And so I called the paper 2K by 2K for Y2K. So a high-resolution image in, uh, in MR used to be a 512 by 512, okay? Mm. 512 uh, pixels by 512. And, and for this paper, I did 2,000 pixels by 2,000. And these are some of the images. And when people saw these images, they were, and they are still very close to the world record today. I mean, they might not be the world record right now, but they have such high resolution. They're still 20 years later, very close to the world record for resolution in MRI. Mm -hmm. So that paper was called 2K by 2K for Y2K. And so that was that was the January, February issue of, of uh, JCAT. And, and Dr. Elster, 
who really fought to defend me. And I owe him a great deal because he, he wanted people to know that Pierre had done ultra high field. And that was the reason that he took all these papers. But he, he wrote in this thing, and I just want to read it because it's so beautiful what he said. He said, Pierre-Marie Robitaille and Ohio State University MRI have done it again. In this issue, they present the world's first MRI images obtained at 2000 by 2000 resolution in honor of the new millennium, of course. In case you miss it, check out the JCAT issue for November, December. Uh, here, Robitaille and his colleagues have published 10 landmark articles describing the design and construction of their eight Tesla whole body MRI scanner. So, you know, and as well as additional remarkable images of the brain. If you wish to download some of these images directly, they're available on our website, uh, Happy Y2K from JCAP. Mm -hmm. So Alan, Alan Elser was a, a super nice guy. I, he's, an, he's a radiologist, but I think he did, a, he did a master's in mathematics at Oxford, I think. But anyhow, this is a nice guy. So that was, so we got some, some beautiful images. And then eventually in 2006, I, 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 I would publish this book, I'll try Field Magnetic Resonance Imaging. And that was, it contained contributions of basically of the world leaders in, in high field MR, uh, all pretty much contributed to that book in 2006. Hmm. So, you know, it, it was an enormous success story. And since that time, you know, now they're, they're probably over, there's well over 57 Tesla magnets in the world now. Hmm. And ultra-high field magnets, there's well over 50 of them. And... Uh, did you ever think of trying to push it even further? Did you ever want to build another? Uh, people have tried to push it further. So in Germany, uh, at the Erwin uh, Hahn Institute, they have a seven decimal magnet with 32 channel parallel transmit systems for whole body imaging. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, you, you see the images off that scanner and you're just like, wow. So, so there was something that happened with a Tesla. So, and this is part of, not being confined by societal norms, right? I didn't care what people thought, okay? You like me, you don't like me, it's, it's completely irrelevant. But what had happened is, when the four Teslas were having difficulty, people came to the conclusion that only the best groups in the world can do high field. Only, this is reserved for the, for the stellar few, okay? And then Robitaille comes along, he's a nobody. <laughs> he builds an eight Tesla and he gets these magnificent images. Well, that actually transformed the field because people started thinking, hey, we can do it too. If Robitaille can do it, why can't we do it? Mm. I mean, so it broke, this, it broke the barrier for Tesla. And not only did it do that for the seven Tesla magnets, but clinically, people started pushing the three Tesla scanners, which have become commonplace now. You know, used to be one and a half Tesla. Now, if you need imaging, you know, people will say, okay, well, let's get a three Tesla image for him because you're going to get a better image. So a Tesla really pushed the whole field forward, not just, uh, you know, in the, in the sense of just the ultra high field scanners, but all of magnetic resonance saw the benefit of going to higher and higher fields. So, and then of course, after the a Tesla uh, and the seventh, the success of the seven Tesla, which they're uncountable now. I don't know how many there are. They're more than 50, but I don't. And they're all over the world. Now, can you imagine that? Never happened with the four Teslas. There are not a bunch of four Teslas all over the world. Hmm. There are those four Teslas that were the 
at these few universities. But after that, people went either to 3T or they went to 7T. And mm. Fort Tesla, yeah. So they went to 7T. And so I had an 8 Tesla magnet because I wanted the field. So that magnet's only 80 centimeters in size. I have to have special gradients for that magnet. But clinical magnets are 90 centimeters mm. in diameter in size. The clinical magnet is 90 centimeters. So the seven Tesla magnets, you say, well, why aren't there a whole bunch of eight Tesla magnets? It's because the seven Tesla magnets have a bigger bore inside. You can make mm. the bore bigger, so they're 90 centimeters. So they fit a standard gradient coil from the manufacturer, whereas the eight Tesla was a little bit smaller at 80, and so it required a special gradient. So, so that's one of the reasons that seven Teslas took off. And, uh, and you know, there was, there was a seven Tesla eventually at, University of Minnesota, about two years after the Tesla at Uberville again, who had done beautiful work. Remember, I trained with him, and then he did beautiful work at 40, and then he got a seven Tesla. And then there was a seven Tesla with Bruce Rosen, and then GH, and then Alan Koretsky at NIH got a got a seven Tesla too. So you know, seven Tesla started really proliferating. These were the early ones with Rosen and Koretsky and Uberville, and then after that, uh, Keith Fallburn who's at the University of Illinois, he got the world's, one of the world's first uh, uh, 9.4 Teslas and he, he did wonderful work on sodium and potassium. And then eventually Ugerville went even further. He got a 9.4 Tesla and then Camille went even further. Now he's got a 10.5 Tesla. But the new record is uh, an 11.7, 90 centimeter magnet. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a new record now, 11.7, it's built by GE. And it reached field in 2019. Hmm. Now, surprisingly, that magnet is not too different than the Tesla. It's different in one thing. So it has almost the same number. Like for instance, there's a there's an 11.7 Tesla supposedly in Korea. It's a 68 centimeter coil, and it's 68 centimeters inside, and it also has 40 400 kilometers of wire, just hmm. like the and. And so how are they reaching 11.7 Tesla? Well, what they do is they lower the temperature of the magnet. So there's something called a critical temperature in a superconductor. And when you lower the temperature of the magnet, so instead of being at four Tesla, instead of being at four Kelvin, now lower the temperature. You, you can pump on the helium and make the temperature go down. So for the, for the 11.790 in Paris, that operates at 1.8 Kelvin. So lower than four Kelvin, so at a lower temperature, the, the conductor, the same conductor, niobium titanium, can carry more current. Hmm. So the question is, well, are we going to go to beyond 11.7 Tesla? Well, the answer is that's not easy. So 11.7, what happens at 11.7 is, so you wind this magnet, but when you wind an 11 uh, with niobium titanium, you can just wind it's a wire and you just wind it on a bobbin and it's no problem and then after that you'll energize it but the next conductor if you want to reach higher field you need niobium tin well that's a different monster because niobium tin is so brittle you can't wind it hmm. what you do is you wind uh niobium and titanium filaments they're next to each other but they're not niobium titanium hmm. niobium tin or niobium titanium uh, niobium, uh, niobium tin. So you wind the niobium and the tin. Thanks for correcting me. You wind the niobium and the tin together. The, the, the filaments are running together, okay? Kind of like a multi-strand thing. 
Mm. Some strands are niobium and some strands are tin. And then those are wound onto the magnet. Okay. So now you'll wind your 400 kilometers or whatever. Now you're trying to reach 20 Tesla. You change conductor. But the thing is, niobium tin, titanium, niobium tin, I'm sorry. Okay. Niobium tin is very fragile. So you can't wind it already made. So you, you wind fibers that contain niobium and tin. And then after you've wound the magnet, you pot the magnet, you cook it. And when you heat it, then the wires melt together and that makes your niobium tin. Wow. Okay. So, and so, so these magnets are very brittle and now people are starting to talk about, well, look, we're gonna try to go to, uh, to 20 Tesla. You know, there's some talk in the world right now. Some people wanna to go to 20 Tesla. Now, I don't know if that's actually a good idea. Higher fields, I mean, you know, there, there are some effects. I mean, people have seen like in frog embryos that the planes of division and the embryo change in very, very high magnetic fields. So mm. there, there, there are things. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's not for me. I mean, I, I think once you reach seven Tesla and, and maybe 11.7, that's that's already pretty good. So I don't know if, if it, how far it'll go, but I don't want to be pessimistic too, you know? I don't want to be the guy that said there'll be no more patents after 1880, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it might be a 20 yeah. it, So I don't want to discourage anybody. You know, the future is not yet set. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so anyhow, you... that's, that's a little bit about uh, MRI. And, uh, you know, and I thought I'd spend my whole life doing MRI, right? Because I would just... I mean, I had built the world's first ultra high field scanner. I had the world's best images, and OSU had given me such a privileged position to lead that effort. So, you know, I thought I'd be doing MRI all my life, but then, you know, I, you know, that this this whole question of power, it, the the RF power, the amount of power that it took to get an image, it just started bothering me, and I started thinking about, well, you know. Gosh, Block, Felix Block, a long time ago, he told us MRI was a thermal process, but but nobody thinks about MRI that way. If you talk to MRI scientists, and what, what processes in MRI are thermal? I mean, most of them won't be able to answer the question, or they don't even think about it, because, it, you know, what does it mean that MRI is a thermal process? You know, people don't want to think about that. And because, well, why bother with it? I mean, I remember when I got the first AT images, People said, well, Pierre, you've got AT images. Why do you care about thermal, thermal physics? Why do you care about it? And I said, well, there's something very important going on here, and, and we need to understand it. So that's why I care. So, so yeah, And getting so interested in the thermal process of MRI led you to get interested in the sort of other fields of physics. Right. So, so MRI is a thermal process. So we were sending, so we're sending RF energy into our sample. We're sending watts and we're receiving a small signal back. Right. But let's say that the person was not in the magnet, you know, when you just put an RF coil on their head and we send watts to them, well, we won't get an MRI image, but we can cook their brain. Right. It's mm -hmm. a, I mean, if we send enough power, so the government regulates that, I mean, the food and drug administration regulates that. So when the AT was built, you know, we had a, a an investigational device exemption from the FDA. So when you do this kind of research, you know, they, 
they don't just let these scientists do whatever they want. The, the, the federal government is controlling this very carefully. You have to because you don't want to injure people, right? And so we had a Food and Drug Administration uh, investigational device exemption. And the 8T actually gave birth to all the 7Ts because when the Food and Drug Administration upped the regulations for imaging humans, they based it on the 8T results. So mm. people, you could image up to 8T, you know, became, okay, that's acceptable. You can do this up to 8 Tesla. So 8 Tesla kind of became a ceiling and now the ceiling will move again. But I think currently it's, it's, it might still be a Tesla, and that's because of our scanner, because it was OSU, it was the only scanner that, that had that. So there was sort so, of this background acknowledgement that there was a thermal process occurring, but it wasn't centered in the discussion. Right, it wasn't centered. But for me, I started thinking about it, and, and Felix Block had called the T1. So we have two relaxation processes going on in MRI. One is called T1 relaxation. And the other one's called T2. And the T1 relaxation, that's an interaction between the spin and the lattice that it's sitting in. So you have a vibrational lattice and, and the spin is interacting with that lattice. And, and Felix Block called that the thermal relaxation constant. Now, if you talk to young MRI people, I mean, young trainees, they probably don't even know that T1s used to be called the thermal relaxation constant. I read a lot of the history of science, so I'm well aware of what the first paper said. And that's what Felix wrote in this paper that 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 you know MRI is a thermal process. So I think this would be a wonderful place to start another conversation mm -hmm. very soon. Yes. With yes, the thermal. Now that, yeah, that that kind of throws me into well, how did Pierre ever get messed up with astronomy and, and when he's doing, you know wonderful things in MRI and having such a, you know, beautiful images and so on. Yeah. How did, now there are a lot of forces in my life that caused me to go towards it. One of them was a science. There was powerful scientific forces that, that sent me that way towards astronomy. And then there were also the reality of, okay, AT is here. And you know what? Other people will make this work now. Mm -hmm. This threshold has been broken and now 70s are appearing in, you know, it's it's okay, you know. You needed a new challenge. Well, it's not just a new challenge. And there were personal forces in my life and a lot of things going on. And I decided, look, it's time to move and, and go after this, I consider, an even bigger prize. And that's the, the sun and the, and the microwave background problem. So I think these prizes, and, and I talk about them. You know, I people think about Nobel Prizes as prizes. I'm glad people get Nobel Prizes. It's great. But I, but the real prizes is just the joy of, you made the discovery, that's the prize, mm -hmm. right? I mean, even if somebody gives you a medal, if you don't get to share in your heart that, that, that personal thrill that you made a wonderful discovery, that you were blessed to be the one that got to do, that got to acquire these images or got to see something about the sun that, that people didn't realize before. That's the real prize. That's why you do science, right? That's where the love of science comes in. It's and that's the problem. human project behind the whole thing that extends beyond one lifetime, which is really Exactly. Amazing. And people don't do science just because they can be rewarded someday with a prize, right? Most scientists, they know there's just a few people are going to get these prizes. A lot of people are working in the laboratories and making big discoveries. They might never get a prize. 
But why do they go to work? They don't go to work because, okay, I'm going to get a prize someday. They go to work because they love science and they, they have that thrill of learning new things, you know? That's a beautiful thing about science. And so, so perhaps... Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah. Perhaps we can start at this point, the next conversation that we have, which is the direction that you went after 8T. Yes. Yeah, the direction I went, how did this guy go off his rocker and move <laughs> out of it? of VAT into astronomy. How did that ever happen? So I, I would put it more, how did this, how did the scientist bridge the gap between these two fields? And I think yeah. that there's a lot there to, to uncover, but I want to right. make sure that we can do it justice. All right. All right. Well, thanks for interviewing me and uh, God bless you all. Thank you, Dr. Revitai. It was our pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Revitai. Let's Rebitai. talk again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.